You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're going to begin reading with verse 1, read through verse 13. We're not going to make it all the way to verse 13, but we'll go ahead and read that far this morning. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and pray that, Father, you'd be pleased to bless us with understanding. Bless us, O Father, uh, with the truths that are in this passage. We pray, O Father, that by way of your Holy Spirit, you would encourage us this morning, that you would give us everything that we need, O Father, that you would meet each of us uh, in our place. And, Father, we look to you and that all of this would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text uh, begins with a, a time frame. And what I'd like to do, really, in many ways, this is kind of an introduction, uh, rather than centering on a couple of specific homiletical points like I would normally do, what I'd like to do, really, is just begin introducing this uh, Passage. There's a number of things here that we can glean from the passage that are, in many ways, auxiliary to it. Uh, that'll become clear, hopefully, here in a few minutes. But um, I want to turn your attention to a couple of things which I think will um, broaden uh, your understanding not only of John's gospel, but of Jesus' ministry in particular, especially as it's recorded by all four uh, gospel writers. And if you notice, verse 1 begins with this sentence, at least in the ESV. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Now, uh, I want to uh, draw your attention to the fact that the synoptics, and uh, how many are familiar with the word synoptic, by the way? Some of us will be. It's new to others. Uh, synoptic is really, it's a, it's a word you're going to encounter in a lot of Christian writings and it's really two words put together, sin, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N, which simply means together. And then optics, you could think of your optometrist, uh, your eye doctor, uh, seeing, and it simply means see together or together seeing. And it's a way to describe 
the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, if you've read all four Gospels, and you'll recognize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar in so many ways, aren't they? And then there's John, and it's quite different. And, and as a consequence, this is why you often hear the Gospels described as the synoptics in John. Uh, and it's a reference to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. And I want to point out to you one of the differences. One of the differences between these Gospels is the emphasis that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put on the Galilean ministry. Now, here in John, we have simply after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. But um, a simple little exercise will reveal this pretty clearly. If you keep your place in John and you just turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Now, Mark's uh, gospel helps us do this because it's a concise accounting. It's a little bit shorter and uh, it's very succinct. And if you go to Matthew or Mark 6, I'm sorry, to Mark 6, there in verse 14, some of you probably have a heading. If you've got the ESV, there's definitely a heading there. It says the death of John the Baptist, and we've been talking about that as we've been studying uh, John chapter 6. So you have the record of the death of John the Baptist. Then you have Mark's accounting of the feeding of the 5,000. And then you have Jesus walking on the water. So uh, here's where we have Mark's account uh, of this event of uh, feeding the 5,000, which we've been studying in, in John's gospel. Now, if you turn to John chapter 7 and you look at verse 24, you'll see that from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, it's always a good exercise once in a while. Many of you have maps in the back of your Bibles. It's, it's good once in a while just to take a peek at those. And especially the, the, there's usually a map that'll say uh, Palestine and during the time of Jesus. And if you look at that, you'll typically see that, you'll see that Tyre is a coastland uh, city along the Mediterranean coast, but you'll also notice that it's north of Galilee. In fact, it's outside of Galilee. And, and you know, if, we, if I was preaching on Mark 7 this morning, I would be probably making a lot of noise of the fact that Jesus is thoroughly out in Gentile lands here. Uh, this is part of his, uh, what we would call his Galilean ministry, uh, if you will. He's north, well north of Jerusalem. And he's, he's in this, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, in the old, we know these cities in the Old Testament as Phoenician cities or land of the Philistines, if you will. And if you look at verse 31, he returns from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and then in the region of the Decapolis. Again, he's, he's out in, in uh, Gentile lands. If you turn to chapter 8, verse 22, there he comes to Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is a city, it's, it's, it's practically the most northern shore of the Sea of Galilee that you can get to. It's, it's, if you look at the Sea of Galilee right on the north, just a little bit uh, to the right of the Jordan, you'll see a little dot of Bethsaida. In verse 27, he goes on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which is north. It's, it's going back up, up north there. And... Um, couple other markers here. If you look at chapter 9, uh, verse 30, uh, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And then in verse 33, they came to Capernaum or Capernaum, however you want to pronounce it. Crick, creek, tomato, tomato. It's at the end of the day, I don't think we know how any of these words are spelled. So 
Don't let anybody give you a hard time. I, you know, I preached my heart out one time. I can't remember where I was at, but I thought, man, I was preaching the gospel as best as I was able, and I really felt like the Holy Spirit was really moving that particular morning. And, you know, it's always my custom to try to get somewhere where I can greet as many people as I can after the service. And I get to that spot where I felt that that would happen, and someone comes up to me and they said, it's magi, it's magi not magi. And I'm like, oh, dear, is that a... I mean, was that, was I an abysmal failure this morning, or what's going on? I mean, that's all you take away from the sermon. It's magi, not magi. I'm like, okay, maybe I said magi. I don't know. Anyway, Bethsaida, uh, Capernaum, or Capernaum, however you want to pronounce it. It makes no difference. But what I'm trying to point out here is, if you get to uh, John chapter or uh, Mark chapter 10, and you look at verse 32. And there, by this time, you see they're on the road headed to Jerusalem. Now, I took you on this little survey not to give you a lesson in geology or uh, geography, rather, because I would be the very poor um, teacher. I'm not the right guy for a geography lesson. Uh, But I take you through this exercise to show you that when John makes this, when John writes this sentence, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, um, he's encompassing this whole thing that we just looked at briefly from Mark. And you're going to see that Luke will pick out some things from that uh, ministry. Matthew will pick out some things. Mark will pick out some things. And it's just wonderful that we have more than one gospel account. You know, that we have four accounts that we can see this from four different angles and four different vantage points, four different viewpoints. Uh, all four of the gospels are, are ultimately developing the same thing, namely that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, as, as John puts it. Uh, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, uh, that we may believe that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Uh, that, that's the idea. Jesus is the star of all uh, four of these, and for that matter, he's the star of the entire Bible. Um, but I wanted to point out to you that uh, this single sentence right here encompasses a lot of uh, ministry. A lot of things take place in that in that sentence. And when you look at the second part of verse 1, I'm in John 7 now, Um, Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, um, this takes us back to chapter 5 and verse 18, if you go back there. We're going to do a little bit of flipping around, but I'm just trying to set the landscape here. Uh, In verse 18, you'll recall, uh, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him for two reasons. One, he was breaking the Sabbath, at least in their eyes, he's breaking the Sabbath, and he was... Uh, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we've looked at this. Uh, was Jesus breaking the Sabbath? I, I have heard, I've heard pastors who I really respect say, yeah, Jesus was breaking the Sabbath, and I cringe at that. I absolutely cringe. I just cringe at that. No, Jesus clearly teaches us that it is lawful in, in this economy, in this dispensation, in uh, however you want to put it, in this administration of the covenant of grace, It was lawful to do works of mercy and works of necessity on the Sabbath day. It was lawful. Uh, In my estimation, Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath because he's healing people on the Sabbath day. But this is infuriating them because they're putting their man-made stuff 
They're putting their man-made stuff on top of the Word of God, if you will. It's almost like, you remember the microfish viewers? You know, you put the little transparency on the microfish viewer, and then you can lay other things on top, and you can kind of put layers on it. Some of us will remember that. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Um, consequence, I guess, of the way time marches forward, some of your, some of, never mind. <laughs> Drop it. We'll put it. We'll put it with the dolphins. Okay, <laughs> we'll put it with the dolphins. Um, Jesus is—he's not breaking the Sabbath by doing works of mercy on the Sabbath day. And in terms of him making himself out uh, equal with God the Father, well, of course he's making himself out to be equal with God the Father. Uh, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man, isn't he? So to those charges. But what's going on here is increased hostility. And we're seeing that this hostility is increasing, it's increasing, it's increasing, and it's increasing. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to, to culminate in the crucifixion of our Lord. And what is Jesus doing? He's staying out of Jerusalem. Now, let me give you another time marker. If you go back to John chapter 6 and verse 4, I made several references to this. At the time of feeding the 5,000, the Passover feast was at hand. And what that tells us is that this is occurring in March slash April, in between the end of March, early April. It coincides with our Easter, if you will. Uh, Easter Sunday this year is April 4th. You know, we'll be celebrating uh, Palm Sunday on the 28th of March, if my memory is serving me correctly. Uh, and uh, so the Passover feast is coinciding uh, with our March, uh, April, if you will. And if you turn to John chapter 7, you'll see verse 2, the, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Well, this takes us to September slash October. Does that you follow me? So this is taking place in the fall. Now, I'm pointing this out because about six months, approximately six months has gone by. And what has Jesus been doing during this six-month time between John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 and John's account of what's taking place here? He's been going about in Galilee. Now, I I would like to make an application right now, and it's a tricky application that I want to make. Uh, There's a lot of ways where this application can go wrong. So I want to be really careful in how I frame this. Um, and secondly, I mean, the first place it can go wrong is the application that I'm going to make right now is an application that we can glean from what we're studying. It's not the main emphasis of what we're studying. The main emphasis of what's going on in John chapter 7 will become clear as we go along. But we can say right now, if we turn to John chapter 20 and verse... You don't need to turn. I've already got you turning too many places. But in John 20, verse 31, John tells us these things were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. That's the overarching message of this. But as we watch Jesus conduct Himself, We can see, we can glean from the way Jesus is conducting himself here to get a couple of principles, if you will, uh, some application, if you will, some gleanings, if you will. And I want to take the opportunity to do that because in our text this morning, I think there are two places that uh, there there are areas where we can actually have a a lot of guilt. Uh, We can have even a, a lot of shame. 
Uh, we can have a lot of anxiety, and I, I think that if we, if, we, if we look at this closely, we can alleviate some of that. Now, what am I talking about? Well, uh, here is Jesus in John chapter 6. He's got big crowds, right? These big crowds are following him. They follow him over the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. They follow him over. Uh, and, and furthermore, we know that what is Jesus doing? Jesus is, obviously, they're trying to get away. We know from the other gospel writers that they've been so busy and so pounded uh, by the ministry that they've hardly had time to eat. It's been, it's been exhausting. And furthermore, they've just heard of the execution of John the Baptist. So they get in the boats, they sail across the Sea of Galilee in order to get away, only to discover when they get to this place that they're going, here are the crowds. And we see the selflessness of Jesus. When he sees the crowds, he doesn't say, oh, somebody uh, may well spark. Peter, will you go tell him, listen, not now. You know, we're, uh, we're busy. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He has compassion on them because he looks upon them as sheep without a shepherd. And he teaches them. He feeds their souls and he feeds their bodies. And then he dismisses them. And then he goes up on the mountain to pray, and he dismisses his disciples and sends them back across the Sea of Galilee. And then at one point, Jesus walks across the Sea of Galilee miraculously, and they end up over in Capernaum. And what happens? The crowd, they discover Jesus is missing. They follow him to Capernaum. In other words, he's got this big crowd following him around. And uh, uh, what does Jesus do? It, uh, they begin, uh, does, uh, they don't understand, uh, and uh, if you go back to um, what verse is it? Verse uh, 25 in John chapter 6, when they find Jesus on the other side, they say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? In other words, they're excited to see him, and what does Jesus do? He says, he says, listen, you're not chasing me around because you're seeing the signs and you're getting the right idea of who I am here. You're chasing me around because you got your bellies filled, Now I've made a lot of noise about that. And the point that I want to make this morning is Jesus doesn't turn it down, does he? He turns it up. And as he, begins, as, they, as he begins to teach them and they begin to grumble and they begin to dispute with him, he continually turns it up and he turns it clear up to the point that they disband, don't they? They leave. Now, here's an important, an important principle here. And it's tricky. I, I haven't thought about this in a long, long time, but when I was at Geneva College, just doing my Bible college work, I can remember, I don't remember the class that I was in, but I remember the discussions quite well. And the discussion was on boundaries in the ministry. And mind you, there was a group of us. Um, we were all, I would say at that point, we were, probably all of us were lay people. Myself and there was a, a, another fella, uh, I think there were two of us who had intentions after Geneva to go to seminary. But for the most part, most of the people just wanted, there were people in the class that just wanted to be more effective Sunday school teachers. I mean, wonderful people. I mean, they just wanted to be more effective in their service of the Lord. And, and um, the subject of boundaries come up. And I got to tell you, a lot of times you learn so much in class discussion, just when you're with the class and you're just discussing things with each other. And what was amazing was, uh, the, the, the people and the circumstances and the places were all different, but the stories were almost exactly the same. 
If you're going to be busy doing ministry, I know many of you have a heart for that. Many of you have been doing ministry for a long time. It's not going to be long before someone comes along who is very demanding of your time. And, and you know, they, they kind of go along with the gospel enough to where it looks like they're it looks like they're making progress. You think they're making progress. And if you're like me, the last thing you want to do is do anything to impede that. And, you know, you, you, you spend this time, and you spend this time, and you spend this time. And here's the thing. This is a tricky thing because Jesus knows what's in the heart of people. He knows. He, I mean, unlike us, he knows what's in the heart of people. And where it gets to be tr- so tricky for us is we don't know that knowledge, do we? But there are some things that I think we can glean from this that can help us from get, be getting so bogged down with maybe one individual or two individuals that we don't have time for anything else, including our families, because it happens. And I can tell you it causes so much anxiety when it's... Some of you are going like this. You know what I'm talking about. Now, some of us may have never experienced that before. If you're going to serve Jesus and you're going to be actively doing ministry, you will, because it's going to happen. And there will be people that become so demanding of your time. And the people that I have in mind here are people that, you know what, 10 years from now, they'll probably still be in exactly the same place they're in in many respects. In fact, I would submit to you they're not going to be. They're going to be backwards because there's no neutrality under the gospel. You're either coming closer to the Lord or you're falling behind. The old preachers used to say, you know, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. I heard that first from old J. Vernon McGee, I mean, on the radio. Some of you have listened to him, you know. If you're coasting, my friends, I got to tell you, you're going downhill. You know, it's like (laughs) there's a lot of truth to that. But back to this point, um, it, it can cause you so much anxiety. What do we see Jesus doing here? Jesus turns it up. I think we get ourselves into this situation many times, not all the time, but many times we get into this situation because we don't turn it up. And we don't admonish. You know, um, there's a form of counseling known as nothetic counseling, and nothetic comes from the Greek word to admonish. And um, a lot of times we're more concerned with being nice than we are with you know, really challenging one another in love. Uh, so we turn it down. Well, what happens? Uh, a lot of times that can, that can, first of all, they're not really getting the gospel the way they should be. Secondly, they're attaching themselves to you instead of Jesus. And thirdly, we make for a lousy Holy Spirit. Have you ever tried to be the Holy Spirit? How did that work for you? You know, we are very poor Holy Spirit. I mean, we can't do it. Jesus shakes off this crowd. And I think it's important for us to see that to understand what happens next. If you look here, the, the, in verse 2, John chapter 7, verse 2, the Jews, the, feast, uh, the Jews' feast of, the, of booths was at hand. Now, the feast of booths, that sounds strange to us. We'd be like, what is that? That's one of the three major feasts that required all Jewish males to come to Jerusalem once a year. And uh, some of the ancient historians tell us that those, this was one of the most popular of those feasts. And Jerusalem swelled up with pilgrims who come from all over the Holy Land in order to observe this feast. 
So you have all these people coming in to, uh, to observe this feast. And in verse 3, Jesus' brothers, that is his siblings, they say to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. Now, what's going on with that? What, what are we to make of that? Uh, what, what, what are they saying to him? Well, I think what's going on here is they're observing the fact that, okay, Jesus is hanging out in Galilee for like the last six months or so. In fact, he's, where's he at now? I don't know. He's up in Tyre. What's he doing in Tyre? He's up in Sidon. He's up in Caesarea Philippi. He's, it's almost like they're coming to him and saying, Jesus, if you really want to make a big splash, you really need to get down to Jerusalem. In fact, here's your perfect opportunity because Jerusalem is about to, it's about to swell. I mean, it's swelling up with people and not just people, but the kind of people you need to talk to, people who are committed to their faith, people who are making the journey coming into Jerusalem. And many rabbis would take, uh, you know, they, they would go in there and teach during that time because there were so many people there. Uh, so you can see his siblings, they're they're, they're encouraging him, listen, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples almost also may see the works you're doing. Now, I, it's hard for me to believe that his siblings haven't heard about the rejection, about this massive uh, amount of people and disciples that have left him. Perhaps they're thinking, Lord, you need to get to Jerusalem and correct this uh, before your cause is lost. They say in verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. At the end of the day, what do they want? They want Jesus to go in and make a big splash. Go in and make a big splash. In other words, go down there and do some big, big miracles. And in doing some big, big miracles, well, then everyone's going to believe. And then John says in verse 5, he says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Let me real quick on the side, digress for a moment, because this is the second place I think where many of us can experience some anxiety. And it's, it's again, it's auxiliary to what we're talking about here. It's not the main thrust of it. But notice that not even Jesus' siblings believed in him. Now, I know some of us have experienced some guilt because, okay, you're, the Lord calls you to faith, and you begin growing, and you begin walking in Him. And in the meantime, you have close relatives. They may be siblings. They may be parents. They may be children. They may be aunts. They may be uncles. They may be nephews. They may be nieces who have yet to come to believe as the result of your ministry. And that can be a source of massive amounts of grief. Do you follow what I'm saying? I know some of us have really felt guilty about that. And it doesn't help when even some well-intended writers say, you know, I've got in my, I was thinking through this yesterday, and I'm looking in my office, and I'm looking around, and, and I have a book on counseling that I bought a number of years ago. And it's written by, if I mention some of the authors in there, it's a compilation of multiple authors. And if I mention some of the authors, you would recognize them. And I'm not going to do that. Uh, because in this book, I read something that I found very hurtful a number of years ago, and I was quite confused about it. And it concerned the counselor himself. Who should be involved in counseling? And this author said the one who should be involved in counseling is the one whose children are all believers. 
And they went on to say that if you can't lead your children to the Lord, how can you lead someone else? Now, this same author would be the one, he would be the one who would shout from the housetops. If you go back to John chapter 6 and you look at verse 37, all the Father gives me to come, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. If you look at verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. He would shout, this guy would preach this until the sun goes down. He fully believes this. He fully believes the, the doctrines of the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God in election. He fully believes that no one comes to faith unless he is born again or born from above. If we think of John chapter 3, he would, he would fully embrace uh, John 6, 63. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Or 665, this is why I told you no one can come to the Father or can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. He would fully believe all that, but yet then he writes a sentence like that. When I first read that, I was leveled by that. But then as I thought about that, I can't, I can't make anyone a believer. I can't make my family believers. If I could do that, I've already done it. In fact, I can't even make me a believer. I didn't make me a believer. I can't take the credit for that. The Lord intruded in my heart, opened up my heart, so that I could see just a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus. That's why you hear me pray that all the time. Lord, just give us a glimpse of your beauty. Because when we see your beauty, it's all over with. Just a glimpse. That's all we need is a glimpse. And it's all over. He is that beautiful, isn't he? Now, I think it is refreshing in many ways when we come to John chapter 7 and we come to verse 5 that not even Jesus' siblings believed in him. Say, what? I mean, here's our Lord dwelling with his siblings. They have known him longer than any of the disciples have known him. I mean, they know everything. And yet at this point in time, they have yet to become believers. And to the best that we can tell from the New Testament, they don't become believers until after his resurrection. And it kind of reminds me of a story. I don't remember where I read the story. I don't know where I, maybe somebody told me this story. I don't remember where it come from or I would cite where it come from. But the story goes something like this. And some of you have heard this story before. There was a man who was very faithful and he was faithful in sharing the gospel with his family, and he was especially faithful in praying for his children, none of whom were believers. I think there were five children, not a single one of them were believers. And he prayed all his life for these children to come to faith, and he dies. And as he passes away, not one of them had come to faith yet. And during the funeral, all of these people came forward and gave testimony to the faithfulness of this man and how much this man meant to them and his faithfulness in handling the gospel. And it was so overpowering that after the funeral, the five children got together and they said, you know something? Uh, Dad was faithful. And he told us over and over and over again to come to Jesus. Do you think it's about time we do that? And all five of them came to faith. Now, if that don't bring a tear to your eyes. But see, here's the point. That man, as faithful as he was, could not bring those kids to faith. It's something only God can do, isn't it? 
And this is another place where we can experience a lot of anxiety that we shouldn't be experiencing, and we're experiencing it really probably out of pride because we think we can do something we can't do. We need to remember what our assignment is, and we need to be aware of what our assignment isn't. Converting hearts is not our assignment. We can't, we, we're not in the regeneration business. We're in the proclamation business. It's up to us to proclaim the gospel. Do you follow me? Now, let's get back to our text in John chapter 7. What are, the, what are his siblings really asking of Jesus? What are they saying? They're saying, listen, get down to Judea. Get down to Judea, and, and that's where everybody's at. And get down there and, 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 and start doing your miracles because when they see your miracles, that, I mean, that, then you're going to be established. And in verse 6, Jesus says to them, well, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, they also, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, if you ever had trouble with those sentences, if you ever read through this and you said, wait a second, Jesus tells his siblings he's not going to the feast, and then he turns around and goes. What's up with that? How do we make sense of that? I'll tell you how I've always understood it. I've always understood it uh, that Jesus is not going, if you look in verse 10, he doesn't go up publicly, but he goes up in private. And I always understood it this way. Jesus is not going to the feast publicly in the way they want him to go. He's going to go to the feast privately. And that's a common interpretation of this. It's how a lot of people understand it. But I don't think it's, I think there's a lot of truth to it, but I don't think it's the full thing. And I'll tell you why. Notice in verse 6, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. I have always understood that as, his, as a reference to the cross. How many have understood it that way? When he says, my time has not yet come, that's a reference to his crucifixion. I don't think it is. And I'll tell you why I don't think it is. Because notice what he says next. Your time is always here. My time hasn't come. Your time is always here. Um, in verse 8, he says, you go up to the feast. I think what he's referring to here is not his work on the cross, but his time to depart for the feast. I think when we understand it this way, this thing, whole thing sorts out. Notice, if we, if we think of it that way, if we, if we say this, my time to go to the feast has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it as works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not, and you notice some of you will have a footnote after not in verse 8. If you look down at the foot in the margins, you'll see it says yet. Some manuscripts add yet. It's because there's a textual variant here. Some manuscripts have, uh, have the Greek word yet there. And it would read this way, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not uh, yet fully come. But either way, I think if we understand it the way I'm explaining it, my time to go up to the feast has not yet come. If we think of it as the feast, not the crucifixion, but the feasts, I think it makes perfect sense, and I'll tell you why. What is Jesus doing? 
Jesus is doing what he promises in John 5 and verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. What is Jesus doing? He is looking to the Father for his marching orders to go to the feast. And when they come to him and they say to him, you go to the feast, Lord. Go down and do this big grand miracle. And then everyone will see the miracle and everyone will believe. That is a competing voice with the voice of the Father. And it's not one that Jesus falls in temptation to because Jesus has heard this voice before. Where has he heard this voice before? Keep your place in John. Again, I apologize for putting you all over the map today, but go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. In verse 1, Jesus, he's been baptized in chapter 3, verse 1 of chapter 4. He's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. We made reference to this, I think, last week. But notice in verse 5, The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. What, for what purpose is that? Well, because the angels will catch you and everybody will see this magnificent display and they will believe. How subtle is that? You want to know, I think the message he's getting from the siblings is the same message. And Jesus right here is at risk of listening to the wrong voice and getting the wrong marching orders. Now, when I say at risk, I don't believe there's any chance that he's going to listen to his siblings over the father. But do you see, where we're, do you see what's happening here? The siblings are saying, go. Go down, do this big miracle, and everybody will believe in you. But the father has not yet told him to go. And I think when we understand it that way, it all comes clear. What do they say? Let's look at let's let's look it through. Let's go back to John chapter 7, verse 3. His brother said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. What are they doing? They're telling him to go on and go down, perform this miracle. But Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come. In other words, I've not been given word from the Father to leave for this feast yet. But your time's always here. You're free to go now. Go ahead. And then he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's where all the hostility is coming from. In fact, if Jesus would go to the feast in the wrong way right now, what could possibly happen? The tensions are mounting to the, to the point that he could be arrested and that uh, he could be executed. And mind you, it's another six months before Jesus will go to the cross. In terms of time frame, we're in the fall, right? September, October. Now, the third Passover is coming in the spring, isn't it? And here's where we are by way of time frame. It's, it's late September, early October right now. 
Jesus will publicly go into Jerusalem, but not at the Feast of Booths. He will publicly go into Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover. Why? Because he is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it is imperative as he goes to this feast, it's imperative that he goes to this feast very carefully. And he is looking to the Father for his marching orders. Does that make sense? I know this is a lot. That's why I didn't want to go real far here. But I think it's important that we start to put all of this together as we go uh, forward in, in John chapter 7 here. So in verse 9, we're told that after this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And why don't we call it a day right there? And we'll pick up here next time, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Father, for your word. And Father, we pray that you'll help us, O oh Lord, to put all this together. There are so many moving parts here. But, O oh Father, once we get these moving parts where they belong and we begin to see all of this, oh, Father, how this is incredible. And, oh, Father, we have opportunity, Lord, to, to hit this again next week. And if anyone is sitting here this morning thinking, oh, boy, what is all this? Oh, Father, I pray that you'll comfort them and say, listen, just keep working on it. Oh, Father, your word is that way, Father. We read some passages of your word, and they become immediately clear to us, and we praise you for it. And we look at other passages of your word, and we think, what, it, what do we do with this, Lord? And Father, we thank you that in your time you teach us all. So, Father, we pray that you will continue to instruct us and teach us, Father. We want everything that you have for us, O oh Lord, and we pray that you'll be pleased to instruct us and lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.